It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest Today, a stark question. Why is Russia bombing hospitals? And our China correspondent tells us why President Xi Jinping is the only world leader who could talk Putin into withdrawing from Ukraine. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday, I'm joined by leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting across Europe and beyond to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's day 15. And today, I'm with the Telegraph's defence and security editor, Dominic Nichols, Francis Durnley from our comments team, and sports journalist, Fadumo Olo. Dom Nichols, let's start with an update from the front. What are the most important developments on the ground? Hi, David. Hi, everybody. The, the most important thing that you may well have seen on the news sites this morning is the uh, is that awful attack in Mariupol that hit the maternity hospital. I mean, this was we're going to talk about it in a little bit later, but this is just the this continues the the pattern we've seen of indiscriminate aerial bombardment, and um, we can talk about whether or not they were targeting the hospital, but firing artillery into an urban area where you know these places are going to exist, and there's no legitimate military target or legitimate military reason for doing so is is um i think it does actually count as a as a war crime so that has been happening down the south in the north uh, to the east of the capital city kiev we saw a a push from about uh, a, a two dozen armored vehicles including what we think is the um, the thermobaric one of the thermobaric weapons russia have in the theater um and this was this was a few k's to the east of uh, kiev um, and this was repulsed by artillery fire, and and it was filmed by we we are um, we think a drone, but if it was a drone, then we're not sure if that drone also if it was a TB2 Baracta drone, whether or not that also fired on the vehicles. But they were that advance was was halted and repulsed. I think it, it says two things to me. It says that the the Russian tactics are, are terrible there. I mean, you see about two dozen. Uh, vehicles in the space of of, a, of about 150 meters. I mean, they're grouping far too tightly, um, and uh, but it also says that if the if the Ukrainians had eyes on it and were able to call in an artillery strike, the fact that they weren't able to continue to fire on that suggests that either they they, they are not as as uh, connected as they would hope uh, between the the sensor that can see what's going on and the the thing that can shoot at it, or maybe they didn't have enough 
artillery available. So it says poor tactics from the Russians and possibly something about the distribution or supply of artillery to Ukraine. Thank you very much, Tom. Quickly, the big news today in the UK has been the introduction of new sanctions. I think it'd be a good idea to drill into what that what that means for Chelsea Football Club. Um, but before that, could you give us a bit of a sense of what, what's the broad sweep of these sanctions? Who are they targeted at? What are they supposed to do? Francis? Yes, well, this is obviously when the invasion first happened, there was much talk by the British government of expanding its sanctions on Russian oligarchs. Initially, that was considered rather slow. But today we've had perhaps the most prominent oligarch in Britain, Roman Abramovich, sanctioned. He is one of seven oligarchs to be hit with fresh sanctions that include asset freezes and travel bans. Quoting the Prime Minister on the announcement, he said there can be no safe havens for those who supported the invasion. Today's sanctions are the latest step in the UK's unwavering support for the Ukrainian people. We will be ruthless in pursuing those who enable the killing of civilians, destruction of hospitals and illegal occupation of sovereign allies. So very strong words from the Prime Minister in terms of the moral onus that he puts on on these oligarchs and their association with Putin's regime. Just to give you a sense of, of, of who some of these people are, one of them um, will be familiar to listeners, um, Oleg Deripaska. He's a leading industrialist who has links with, with several British politicians. He's one of the richest men linked to Putin and made his billions in stakes in, in the aluminium industries. His net worth is around two billion. We've also got the chief executive of Rosneft, a Russian state oil company, the chairman of VTB Bank, um, CEO of the energy company Gazprom, which has obviously been very much discussed in relation to the energy crisis at present, um, president of the Russian state-owned pipeline company Transneft, and the chairman of the board of directors of Brands Yorosivia, which is already sanctioned in the UK and is widely considered to be the Kremlin's private bank. So not a, an inconsiderable list of, of oligarchs that have been sanctioned today and the government is announcing that there will be more in the days and weeks to come. Thanks Francis. Dom, I don't know if you've got anything to add to that? All I'd add is that from the Russian side it's, I think it's all part of the all part of the strategy. So we saw this Kremlin Ministry of Foreign Affairs spokeswoman say uh, the West must understand the quote danger of sending Kiev weapons. We talked yesterday and, and the day before about the possible use of chemical weapons and we predicted that there would be some discovery and sure enough yesterday again the the Russian foreign affairs ministry saying that they'd discovered these labs in in Ukraine that are funded by the US these biological labs they all, all sort of getting these terms on the table possibly as a, as a precursor to any false flag operations of if Russia was going to use chemical weapons. We'll talk a little bit more about the reaction to that one, the the biological weapons story, a bit later, because it's very interesting stuff from China's uh, Global Times about that. But I just make the point that these messages are designed to um, scare the West. They're designed to say to the West, you know, stay away, do not engage, there's going to be consequences for you if you send weapons. Um, uh, And they're also, these actions of of bombing civilian areas, they they are there to terrorise the population with the aim of forcing the, the leadership in Ukraine to, to negotiate and from a weak position. So this is all about putting pressure on, the, uh, on Zelensky and the Ukrainian leaderships. On the one hand, to say, you are isolated, the West are not coming to your support, they know the risks of getting further involved, they're not going to send weapons, they're not sending the MiG-29s, and at the same time, look at the, uh, the cost that's being exacted upon your, upon your people. So, so yes, these messages are, are aimed uh, at the West, but I think... This is all part of the same strategy, which is directed to get Zelensky to and, and Ukraine's leadership to give up effectively.
So now it's a great pleasure to welcome Fadumo Alo, a Telegraph sports journalist. Fadumo, you've been looking at the impact of sanctions on Chelsea Football Club. Can you talk us a little bit through about what the, what the sanctions on Roman Abramovich mean for, for the club? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a question about why it is um, Abrahamovich is one of the seven people that have been amongst seven people to have been sanctioned for this. So it's been obviously widely documented that he's um, got links to metal firms that have been providing steel to the Russian military to build the tanks. So that's his immediate link to this situation. And I guess for Chelsea, over the last couple of days, Abrahamovich has been making moves to try and sell the club on and release a statement about how He's trying to preserve the history and, you know, the foundations of Chelsea Football Club. But with the new sanctions in place, um, the government is essentially freezing his, you know, billion-dollar plan to sell Chelsea and any other assets they hold. So the existing licence freezes his assets, preventing him from selling the club until the government changes that. There are, you know, the Telegraph understands that special dispensions can be made to change that, whether that is, you know, he, he'll be selling the club through government guidance or government licences if, he is approved to be so, but it would be done in such a way that the funds wouldn't benefit Abrahamovich in the long run. So there's lots of, to, lots of uncertainty at the moment, but um, immediate sanctions are limiting Chelsea as a football club and affecting fans over the next couple of days. So does it mean they can still play matches? Yes, the government has confirmed it's issuing a special licence that's going to allow matches to continue. But for this, as part of this licence, match costs are capped at... £500,000 per match, and that includes security, that includes stewarding costs, catering costs, etc. And I think the one which fans and players will probably be more, more worried about is the cost, including travel expenses, which currently is set at £20,000. With Chelsea having progressed within the Champions League, there's going to be you know questions about what that means for them travelling internationally or even playing games here as part of the Premier League. And alongside that, there's also questions around what this means for fans going to the games. Um, as it stands right now, only season ticket holders can be able to go to games. Chelsea are not allowed to sell any club tickets outside of that. And one of the upcoming games is against Brentford. So um, Brentford FC have asked about their ticket allocation and what this means for their fans who've already purchased tickets or have plans to be going down to Stamford Bridge. I thought it'd be very good to get into this. Thank you very much, Fadima, just because this is a good example of how sanctions are impacting local life in, in countries around the world. I don't know, Francis or, or Dom, if you want to come in on this. I mean, it seems sort of extraordinary. I mean, do we think the existence of the, of the club is at stake? Certainly, its position as one of the great clubs of the country, I would say, is at stake. But I would just comment on the significance and symbolic significance, namely, of, of Roman Abranovich being sanctioned in this way. I mean, for, for, for years and years now, he has been seen as the sort of archetypal, stereotypical oligarch in this country. And yet he has really been considered untouchable at the same time. And so... I think it was really impossible for the government not to, if it was very, very serious um, about sanctioning oligarchs, not to, for him to be on that list. I don't think the public would have been able to take the sanctions seriously were he not on it. So the fact that he is, I think, is is a real watershed moment in terms of how oligarchs are seen in this country, because I, I listed some of the CEOs and etc. who are among the, the latest oligarchs. Not many of them will be known to the British public, but Roman Ivanovich certainly is. And and I think that it will have a this will be a moment that the British public think that actually we are serious about clamping down on dirty money in, in, in London and in the rest of the country. Is there anything more to say on Chelsea or should we move on for Dumo? I guess the most immediate thing to say on Chelsea is that this sanction only happened today and it's forever changing. As of this morning, there was 
it was a, a blanket rule that, you know, the selling was completely stopped. And then later on in the day, it was government clarified that the selling of Chelsea Football Club could happen, but under a special license. So it is a forever changing situation. But as of right now, a lot of fans, a lot of viewers, and I guess a lot of um, this audience will be interested to know what will happen to Chelsea over the next coming weeks and what this means in terms of sponsorship. Telegraph understands that there's, you know, lots of sponsorship alongside TV rights and brands that work with, who are commercial partners with Chelsea, who are reviewing their partnerships with Chelsea and their deals. And this could essentially really make the club lose millions of pounds over the next year or so. And it's really, you know, brought down the cost of the club on a serious basis. So it'll be interesting to see what happens going forward. But it is a massive statement to be made. And again, it's a clear stance from the government that they are going against anyone that is a support of this war and financially aiding the bombing of, like, you know, lots of vulnerable people in Ukraine. Thank you very much for doing it. That was um, extremely insightful. Let's turn to to the bombing of the innocents. When we were sort of preparing the space and wondering what the title should be and wondering how to talk about it, many things went through our minds. How do we how do we get into talking about a Mariupol? So I think maybe in true journalistic fashion, the the best way is the simplest. So can we describe what happened yesterday in Mariupol with the, with the hospital? And let's ask the question: Why is Russia bombing hospitals? Dom Nichols. Yeah. So at about five p.m. London time. Uh, so was that 7, 7 p.m. Uh, Ukraine time yesterday? The uh, hospital number three, a, a children's hospital, maternity hospital in Mariupol, the besieged city on the south coast, was hit by ordnance unknown, but but seemingly artillery. That's what it's being assessed as, and it caused a huge amount of damage. Initial reports were that uh, only seventeen people had been injured. This was this was put down to the fact that um, most people had been in the basements for some time now because of because of the shelling in the area. However, that's since been uh, Ukraine sources have said that three people died, including a, a six-year-old girl. We should be careful about relativism here. So what's worse, that a, a 30-year-old man is killed or uh, a 10-year-old boy? Or I mean, it's all, it's all horrific and it's all terrible and it, and, it, and it should not happen. In this day and age, there are ways of knowing where you are firing and if you are not sure where your rounds are going to land, then you should not be firing there. And that becomes even more important when you talk, when you talk about urban combat because in any city centre, and there may well be military targets in those in those areas but the 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 ways of targeting those sites do not lend themselves to heavy artillery and we shouldn't be surprised by this this is what russia did in syria either with or or with the syrian forces or on their own um this is what they do this is what we saw in in chechnya and grozny um i mean we we need to be careful that we don't just just sort of accept that this is this is terrible and move on and then there'll be another atrocity tomorrow and we move on we should mark these things because this is what's happening and they they want us to mark it they know that this this presses our buttons and I'm very happy for my buttons to be pressed on this because it it, it shows the level of humanity that we exhibit here compared to to those who have fired these shells and what I said earlier I use the word you know, terrorism or to terrorize deliberately I mean that's what this is this is this is terrorism and we have sanctions for that. We know we know what that means if it's if it's um, some idiot with a knife on the London tube. But this is it at a grand state level. And for all the suits and for all the meetings and talks and the and the statements and the very sort of overblown examples of statecraft, this is what is happening. This is what these people are allowing to happen, if not specifically directing to happen. And we should absolutely not forget that. 
if I could just echo um, what Dom said, some of the photographs that people would have seen this morning in, in our newspaper and others are truly horrific, um, as they have been throughout this conflict. Dom mentioned Syria. Many listeners will remember the significant parliamentary vote in 2015 initiated by David Cameron prior to what he hoped would be military action in Syria after the use of chemical weapons there by um, the Assad regime in the Syrian civil war. And um, he believed at the time that he had the support of Ed Miliband and the Labour front bench, who then at the very last minute withdrew their support, leaving Cameron in the position of thinking he was having a a vote that would would certainly pass to actually a vote that he would end up losing because people will remember it was a it was a hung parliament at the time. I think many of us now and, and many at the time, too, were saying this really has had massive and would have massive geopolitical ramifications um, and in a very, very negative way. I mean, effectively, it was the erasure of certain red lines that we accepted in the civilised world about what were permitted in warfare and um, and what wasn't. And effectively, the West said, because once Britain had had that vote, um, President Obama said that he would not intervene as well. And he said that they, they, those were directly correlated. By erasing this red line and saying that we would not act, it has only emboldened, I would argue, um, dictators around the world to do anything that will aid their attempted subjugation of a country. So not only did it say that chemical warfare would be permitted, it allowed the Russians to have a strategic foothold in the Middle East via Assad, who still to this day um, um, was only last week um, championing what Putin was doing in Ukraine. Um, it also had other impacts as well. I mean, people will remember the tragic scenes um, in 2015 during the migration crisis, something that was felt here, but was felt very, very acute, acutely in Europe. I was in Europe at the time and remember seeing the tragic scenes in stations that were across Europe, particularly in Germany, of uh, makeshift refugee camps. You know, a million Syrian refugees arrived in Germany, I believe. This had a very destabilising impact on Europe. Europe. And more significantly than that, the EU was not able to come up with a coherent strategy about how it was going to to handle such vast numbers of refugees and, and, and migrants um, entering Europe. Um, and in so doing, it weakened the credibility of the European Union at a crucial moment and may in its own way have contributed to, to how Britain viewed it um, in the months that followed. So we cannot underestimate, sometimes decisions that we don't see at the time as being absolutely critical turning points actually are. And I think a lot of people today with this talk of chemical warfare and some of the atrocities that we've seen committed in the last 24 hours are looking back on that vote and are saying, my God, what have we, what did we do? And one of them was former Labour MP Tom Harris, who wrote um, very movingly in online for the paper today. So I'd recommend that people read that, who regrets his vote to vote with the Labour government, with the, uh, the Labour opposition and, and, and not to, um, not to participate in in airstrikes in Syria. It had a huge impact and one that we should all be ruining, I think. Dom, I don't know if you want to come in on that at all. What's your take? I would just echo that this is becoming a battle for uh, values and and humanity. And we have to remember that this is is not done at the will of of every Russian person. This is a very small clique who have a warped worldview directing this war and and directing their their politics in the country. And... um, we need to hang on to our humanity and the 
lovely old lady down the end of your road selling blini and borscht is is not it's not her decision so we 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 need to reach out to our russian friends and those people um that we that we know from our daily life and and hold them close because this is this we we have a, this is a battle against the leadership not the russian people um that's that's the point that the the politicians are trying to make and it's very difficult to do that with sanctions it's very difficult when McDonald's and Netflix and Adidas are, are pulling out, Apple pulling out, pulling out of Russia. It's very easy for Putin to turn around and say, see, I told you all along, big conspiracy against us, they all hate us. Well, we don't. We don't, we don't hate every Russian. The, we, we've commissioned a piece by the academic Mark Allman today, um, who will be writing later on, making this point that Dom has just made, which is that economic sanctions are one thing, but cultural sanctions are quite another. And I have been very vividly, or, or was very vividly, affected by looking at the old footage of in when McDonald's first opened in Russia and the collapse of the Soviet Union. This was a hugely symbolic moment for, for the ordinary people who were, you know, clambering to get this first taste of of, of, of Western food and you one could argue Western freedoms and we forget that yes on the one hand the propaganda machine in Russia is very successful that many ordinary people do support Putin but they are by no means um, the majority and there are dangers that we make accidentally Russia a sort of a, a, another North Korea completely diplomatically isolated and one has to ask who does that benefit more does it benefit Putin or does it benefit um, World peace. I mean, I think that, that the evidence in North Korea would be that it has not had the effect that we would hope. I think the wisest strategy is one where we are seeking to drive wedges between Putin and the Russian people. And ways of doing that, of course, are soft power in culture, but also not having indiscriminate bans on Russian things. There's been some talk recently about that and not going and calling for blanket bans of anything that's associated with the country because that's just not going to work and it's going to arguably have the opposite effect than we intend. On Thursday, Beijing called the conflict in Ukraine a war for the very first time. State media had so far refrained from calling it that, or an invasion, or condemning it. When the UN voted to condemn President Putin's invasion, China was one of 35 countries who abstained. It has largely stayed silent on the conflict, with just a brief mention of it by the country's foreign minister on state television on Thursday, saying he hoped fighting would end quickly. But citizens' views of the conflict are censored. So, to dig into how the world's number two economy is viewing this crisis, I called our China correspondent, Sophia Yan, in Beijing. I'd like to ask about how this war is being seen by ordinary Chinese people. What's on your TV screens and the front pages of the newspaper? And is there a lot of interest? And how is it being presented? China has covered the war. They have certainly carried stories about what's happening in Ukraine, amplifying the messaging from Moscow, even if it's false information. All news is controlled by the government here. Media is entirely state-run, to the point where communiques dictate what outlets are allowed to cover, and in what way. A lot of foreign news organizations, like the BBC, are censored in China. So what this nation of 1.4 billion people largely understand uh, of what's going on depends on what Beijing allows them to know. One reporter for a Chinese state broadcaster is embedded with the Russian military, interviewing soldiers, capturing exclusive footage. It's access on par with what Russian state media seems to be getting. Chinese state media even going so far as to push Moscow's conspiracy theories, including disinformation that Russia is launching airstrikes in Ukraine 
to destroy bioweapon manufacturing labs to prevent the U.S. from disseminating more coronaviruses after having unleashed COVID-19 on the world. That's a lot. But that's the kind of thing that we're seeing here in China. Lines that come out of Russia, the sort of messaging from Moscow that China's happy to present again to its own public. But it's not wall-to-wall coverage. There's Within the country, there have been other events. Hmm. The Paralympics are still going on right now. Just a few weeks ago, the Winter Olympics were going on. And at the moment, China is also holding its annual rubber stamp parliament meetings. And so because there hasn't been wall-to-wall coverage, it seems that a lot of people are pretty confused about what's going on. That, of course, war is bad. That this kind of situation is never one uh, that anyone would welcome. But it seems that There's not much understanding as to why this is happening. There's been a lot of disinformation pushed uh, from Beijing that actually the U.S. is to blame for this situation escalating. And because there's been so much anti-U.S. rhetoric over the last couple of years with the bilateral relationship deteriorating so much under Trump and now still under Biden, that's something that a lot of Chinese glob onto. To them, it makes sense perhaps, that the U.S. would have caused trouble elsewhere, too, if they were causing trouble for China. There's just a a really not a very high level of understanding about what's happening because so much information is censored. Just turning to the political and diplomatic side of this, uh, it was just a month ago that Vladimir Putin declared a no-limits friendship between Beijing and Moscow when Mr. Putin was in China to attend the opening ceremony of the Winter Olympics. How, How has this friendship played out over the last few weeks? What a bromance. She and Putin have been courting each other for the entire decade that she's been in power. They've met dozens of times. It's a strategic partnership, both aligned on values, but not really in the way uh, the West and its allies would consider uh, a cooperation. Uh, They're really opportunistic frenemies, happy to work together when they agree, happy to avoid the areas in which they disagree. But what they really see eye to eye on is this idea that the West is in decline And that authoritarian states like China and Russia could possibly rise to greater prominence, perhaps even become top dog, at least in Beijing's case. Uh, China has described its relationship with Moscow as rock solid. And indeed, Xi Jinping has spoken with Putin, but not Zelensky. And what this means is that Xi is the only world leader who stands a chance at bending Putin's ear to possibly reason with him. It's a question of whether China will want to take that role or not. That's a big step, too, because what if she tries to do it and Putin says, well, no, (laughs) that's embarrassing for she. It's, you know, for China, this situation is absolutely not desirable. Mm. This is getting potentially tricky for Xi Jinping and China. Um, You wrote a story a couple of days ago saying that she was unsettled by Putin's difficulties in Ukraine. Unsettled in what way? But China often says that it supports global peace a stock line to respond to unrest happening anywhere in the world. But what's going on right now, what Russia is doing, has actually put China in a very complicated situation, even though Beijing will not publicly admit this. War and sanctions will hurt global growth, and that includes China, the world's second largest economy behind the U.S. That means China's economy will get squeezed during already uncertain times given the pandemic. China's waffling on the situation, refusing to denounce Russia, also risks damaging its reputation on the world stage, not to mention its relationships with Europe and the U.S. And these are relations, by the way, that were already on the rocks. Mm. And at the same time, if Putin is weakened by the U.S., the broader West, that could have a, a pretty humiliating ripple effect on Xi. That would be the ultimate sign that perhaps 
U.S.-led Western dominance is in fact not in decline, which goes against Xi's worldview that authoritarianism is superior. I mean, if someone like Putin can be brought to heel, that could also give Xi's political rivals domestically some new ideas about what they could go do. Do you think what the Chinese leadership wanted was uh, or, or assumed would happen would be a quick war in which the tanks rolled into Kiev, um, there wouldn't be this protracted struggle or resistance and there would just be no knock-on effects and they, they wouldn't have to commit either way and they could just stay behind Moscow. Now they're being put, because of the Ukrainian resistance, they're being put in, a re- as you described, they're being put in a really tricky position. In all the conversations I've had, it, it does seem like China was also surprised, much as the way the rest of the world was that this came to pass. Uh, There's a lot of discussion about whether or not she knew about what Putin might do. Uh, They did meet just a few weeks uh, before Russia invaded at the start of the Olympics, attending the opening ceremony. And it's hard to imagine that they didn't at least talk about it or mention it or allude to it. But, you know, there's no way for us to know really what she did or did not know. There's not really a scenario, I think, where China would have wanted war because this impacts their interests too. China has trade links with Ukraine. They've had various programs for cooperation. They have a relationship. And Ukraine is in Europe, Europe, which China really wants to get into too for economic reasons. And this is definitely not something that will help those priorities. So, so let's turn to these sanctions. Russia's been hit by unprecedented sanctions from the West, and we're just seeing their, their impact in the last few days, I think. Um, how has China responded to them? China has yet to respond in a, a very big way on sanctions, but it is indeed the most well-positioned nation in the world to help Russia through this, to help mitigate the impact that this is going to have. And that means Beijing has the upper hand. That's another reason why she could have a shot at talking some sense into Putin. But China, at the end of the day... Its number one priority is about protecting its own interests. Supporting Russia through the impact of sanctions opens China up to being hit itself with secondary sanctions. And again, with the economy already feeling the impact of the pandemic, growth not always necessarily being where Beijing wants it to be, that's something that Beijing will want to avoid, this idea of secondary sanctions and the risk of that happening. But still, it remains to be seen how Beijing maneuvers its way out of this. There's another aspect I think we should definitely talk about. The Russian invasion of Ukraine has caused particular alarm in self-ruled Taiwan, which China claims as its own. But how how has the Ukrainian resistance impacted Chinese thinking about Taiwan, if if at all? China will absolutely study what's happening militarily right now and do its best to learn. China's military hasn't had so much experience in terms of active conflict. And so this is one opportunity where they can strategize and see how the rest of the world is responding, what Russia did, where where Russia might have gone wrong, what the Ukrainian side is doing. Uh, What level of support the world offers to Ukraine is also instructive for Beijing. And with the weight of sanctions coming so swiftly, China knows now that it needs to figure out how to insulate itself for a potentially similar punch in the future. Really what's going on is a potential template of what could come to pass if China were to invade Taiwan. But we should be really clear here. There's no domino effect at play. Mm. China will do what it wants with Taiwan based on its own timeline, when it's ready politically and militarily. And if Beijing were to move, it would have to be very confident of surefire success. A protracted war would be embarrassing and tarnish Xi's legacy, possibly cutting short his time in power altogether. 
But just as Putin messaged for years about his designs for Ukraine, she has also made clear his intention to bring Taiwan back into the fold. And so that really shouldn't be taken lightly. Thanks for that, Sophia. I guess everything we've been talking about goes to my, I think, my final question, which is, do we think this war is bringing China and Russia closer together or is it pushing them apart? Given shared values, this is absolutely bringing them closer together, at least on the surface. Ukrainian diplomats have said to me that they see the bird's eye view of this really as a showdown between East and West. And that is really what we're seeing play out. China, even though they haven't said so explicitly that they support Russia, really they're silent about it. But by not saying very much and having all this state media messaging, as we talked about, that's so pro-Russia, it shows where they're hoping things go, right? That they are showing which side they think is closer to the way they think. Uh, But the Russian invasions really put Beijing in a pickle for the reasons I described earlier. And so trying to keep Moscow a bit at arm's length going forward, that's probably something that China will be thinking about. China will absolutely not want to see Russia fail. How that happens, uh, how that's defined, what success looks like for Russia, that remains again to be seen. The situation is very difficult, uh, you know, siding with Russia or Ukraine, both options they're not that palatable. Siding with Ukraine, again, means on the ideology front, on the values front, China is siding with the West. But China also has an interest in keeping its relationship with the West going. I mean, trade links, access to markets abroad. There's a lot of uh, impetus for China to try to stay somewhat friendly with, with the rest of the world. But again, we just go back to this idea of values, and that's at the core of how China thinks. And that definitely is where they align with Russia. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine coverage, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first month free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio, or have it delivered straight to your inbox when you sign up to Dispatches, our daily Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from the front line from our award-winning foreign correspondents. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter to see what we're up to. If you found this show useful, Follow Ukraine The Latest on your podcast app. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Theodora Ludludis and Louisa Wells. And on Twitter, Sophie Coe. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.